Off, you're listening to the August 8th, 2014 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm happy this evening to be welcoming back to the show Dr. Jerome Brook. He is the executive director of the Ayn Rand Institute, and we will begin our discussion with Jerome in just a few minutes. If you're here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room and you do have questions for Jerome Brook, you can type them here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. You can also call in with your questions at 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. If you would just like to sit back and relax and listen to the conversation that we have planned, you can check out the topics that I've posted at don'tletitgo.com. But before we get started with your own Brooke, I am believing I'm going to be answering the phone and welcoming to our show here Brittany Faye Rivera. Is this Brittany? Hello? Yes. Hi, Amy. How are you? Hi. Welcome back to the program. For those people who don't know, Brittany is the Director of Development for The Undercurrent, and I've invited Brittany here to briefly uh, remind you, if you already knew about it or, or talk to you if you haven't heard about it, remind you of The Undercurrent Conference, the student conference that's going to be held in October. Can you tell people a little bit about this, Brittany? Absolutely. Thank you for allowing me to do that. So the undercurrent, for anyone unfamiliar with the organization, um, is moving into activism. We're really focused right now on presenting Ayn Rand's ideas to students nationwide who are fans of Rand or agree with some aspect of her philosophy, um, but maybe are confused about a certain aspect or seriously disagree with another. And what, what we're doing this fall is we're bringing in you know, hopefully a couple of hundred students uh, into D.C. at a local university to hear various talks from uh, objectivist intellectuals, Amy is included, um, to discuss these issues, find out where the confusion lies, and hopefully let the students walk away with, at the very least, a better understanding of what Rand is trying to convey. Um, in best-case scenario, we get some people who really think the philosophy is great and, and become more invested. Now, Yaron, who's sitting here with me, he's also going to be speaking at the conference, hey, correct? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Don't Hi, forget I me, I didn't realize Brittany. you're on the line. Well, let me tell you all about Yaron. <laughs> he is the superstar <laughs> of the conference. <laughs> he's opening. Um, you actually probably don't even know this yet, Yaron. You're, no, you're on I the don't. line for three talks. <laughs> so. Three. I, I want three, I, yes. I want triple the pay. Do you know that your own gives yeah. talks in his sleep, so it's no big deal? Anyway. <laughs> triple the pay. Well, I, I figured, yeah. I mean, one of them's a panel, so he can just walk in with a cup there of coffee go. and be fine, I think. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah, it's going to be fun. So when is it, Brittany? October, right? October 11th and 12th, yes, uh, at American University in D.C. So for students who are interested 
in applying, they can go to conference.theundercurrent.org. Uh, it is students only, unfortunately, so the general public is not invited. Uh, we have started to waitlist students uh, because there's such a demand, and there are currently, oh, I want to say 56 students who have been accepted and are planning to attend, and we still have um, another month to go of applications. Now, if people are interested in finding out more, I've got links for two different things at my blog. I've got the link for the students who want to apply. So if you go to don'tletitgo.com, you'll see one link for the students who want to apply to be at the conference. And then there's another link for people who want to support the conference. How are you guys doing on that front? You know, we're getting there. We've got a couple of large organizations who are helping out with the conference. One of them, of course, is the Iron Institute. Uh, Coke is involved. The Leadership Institute's involved. Um, we've actually made it easy for anyone who wants to support us to donate directly from the conference page. There is a support us link on that page. Um, right. And, you know, we're, 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 like I said, we're waitlisting students. We're trying to offer as much assistance for them to travel as possible. The costs are very low. It's under $500 per student for the entire weekend. So if you're really interested in getting students out to this event, I would highly encourage you to donate and, and help us make a difference this year. Excellent. Excellent. So go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. There are two links for the undercurrent under the program notes for today's show. So if you're already there checking out the topics for your own, you just see those undercurrent links and donate. And I'm looking forward to it, Brittany. Thanks for organizing it. Yeah, not a problem. I'm excited to have both of you. Excellent. Excellent. And and so you're at a conference right now, right? You're staying up late (laughs) in the East Coast. I am I am at a fee conference. So for those of you not familiar, it's the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, it's it's actually been an interesting experience so far. I like see a lot. I like their conferences, but I am already hearing a lot about RAND and identifying some of the misconceptions. Um, which you know, it's good to know. I'm I'm learning what what the students are are thinking and talking about. And um, you know, a lot of the students are already agreeing with you know economical issues, but you know, there are some issues and some misconceptions about who Rand was and what she thought. So I'm I'm really hoping that some of these students will want to apply and attend. That would be great. And then also you'll have to brief your own and I on the misconceptions that you're hearing about so that we can make sure to profitably address them when we get there. So thanks very much, Brittany, for calling. And I hope that you'll be able to listen. I mean, maybe not now because it's late on your coast, but listen to the conversation your own and I are about to have. So thanks. I will definitely listen back. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Yaron. Okay, great. We'll talk to you again, Brittany. Take care. Okay, so... We've got our list of topics, Sharon. Are you ready to be grilled? Always. Um, You know, we set this up a few weeks ago, and the reason I jumped on this was because you said you were going to visit the NSA. Yeah. So you went to actually visit. You were in the the, the the lion's den. In the building. (laughs) We welcome the NSA to our show all the time, of course. (laughs) But probably you think they're probably not listening. I'm pretty convinced they're not listening. Okay. So tell us about your visit. So in how, spite how did you of my go? I'll constant joking about that NSA is listening to everything, I doubt they're actually on. Um, so I was invited to join uh, 10 other academics and spend basically a day at the NSA. Um, we uh, were invited. Um, we had a little tour uh, of kind of a, a section of the NSA that's kind of a museum for, for past uh, about past wars and they were all in past wars and defending the country and so on and then and then they basically put us in a conference room for about eight hours 
And we were in a conference room and, and uh, weren't allowed to go anywhere to the bathroom. We had to be escorted and everything. So Wow. Yeah, so it was, security was high, and you couldn't bring a camera, and you couldn't put a phone, you couldn't bring anything inside. So no electronic devices. Although, I have to say, they didn't check. So unless they had some spooky way of telling whether you were hiding a phone in your pocket, they, we didn't go through metal detectors. So you, couldn't, you couldn't even have a phone that was turned off. No, you had no, to have they absolutely didn't want nothing. You, no electronics. And it's true, by the way, of this, other people who work there. So supposing people who work there, don't, you know, you don't take a phone to work. You 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 leave it you leave it in the car. Uh, you don't take it into the building. So, um, and yeah, and then they brought out they basically brought out a, a a bunch of different people from different departments who do different things at the NSA to try to explain to us what they do, why they do it, how they do it, try to respond to some of the stuff coming out uh, from. Um, uh, you know, from the critics and uh, from the, 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 the various disclosures and, uh, you know, trying to really convince us, I think, that they're following the law first, that they're not breaking the law. Right. That was one thing when we were talking about this that you said repeatedly they kept saying, well, we're following the law. So how can you blame us? We're following the law. Yeah. But, but look, in the way our country structured is is we can't right the law is the problem and and we'll talk about this but the executive branch is the problem and american foreign policy is the problem not the employees of the nsa no. i mean it's not to that point yet right i mean you you blame the uh, you know you blame the, the the nazis pulling the trigger but but you recognize that ultimately you know the real people responsible for it are at the top and here, and you know, we'll get yeah. So we'll talk about what's really the problem. But look, so there's a bunch of people coming in, and they're telling this story, and they tell us what they do. It's all declassified, so they don't tell us any real spooky stuff. But some of the stuff is borderline. And um, you know, so I'll say this: the people who come through, you get a sense that these are people who care about America, mm-hmm. who who care about protecting it. Their primary purpose of being there is to defend the life and property of American citizens. But it's a job, right? And, and their bosses tell them to do other stuff. And some of the other stuff has to do with the priorities that the U.S. government has. Right. So, for example, what, what does the NSA you know, listen into? So certainly terrorism. So they're, they're very engaged in, in listening to terrorism and so on. But in addition to terrorism, um, it's any other foreign policy priority that, that, the, that the executive branch, that the White House tells them. So, for example, right now, it, Russia, Ukraine, all of that listening in is important. But it's more than that because one of the things the White House, for example, would like to know is what are our allies thinking about Russia and the Ukraine and everything else going on? So what the NSA gets is a request from the White House saying, what is German leadership thinking right now about the world or about Ukraine, or about Russia? So what do they do? They tap Angela Merkel's phone, right? Because that's how you get to find out what German leadership is thinking about these things. But, okay, so those those kind of things. You kind of say, okay, Russia, Ukraine, yeah, I mean, there's some reason for them to be listening in. Russia sure, is a, sure. a potential enemy of the United States. You want to listen. You want to know what's going on. Tapping into Angela Merkel, we can talk about that, but it seems stupid to me. What, what is the meaning of an ally if well, you have to and, listen into them? And the other thing is when if they're doing it for so-called economic Well, in this case, they argue too, it's right? not. It's for security. Right, right. She's negotiating with the Russians about you know what kind of sanctions they can have. So it's, it's, it's not borderline, but it's closer to kind of a 
conception of American self interests and American. But then you know, then it goes to uh, well, things like the drug war, right? The drug war occurs outside of the United States to a large extent. Uh, NSA is responsible for that. So it's conceived of, and, and they talked about it as a national security issue. I would go even further, immigration. Mm-hmm. Immigration is a national security issue. And uh, so they're listening in to the coyotes and they're listening in probably to organized crime in South America and all of that. And of course, who are those people communicating with? Often they're communicating with Americans, and, and we'll get to kind of the relationship with Americans in a minute. So the drug war, it, it's things like that. So where does this end, right? What if the, what if the White House sends down a, a thing saying, and, and I wouldn't be surprised, I didn't push them on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if this was an example. What about um, banks in Switzerland helping Americans evade taxes, right? That's overseas. Right. We'll talk about inversion later, but that's kind of perceived as a national security, right? Tax. We lose all our taxes. This that's a huge so-called right yeah. national security issue. So anything overseas, they feel like they have a right to listen to, and or, or accumulate emails and electronic data on anybody overseas who's not an American citizen who doesn't live in America. We'll get to American citizens in a minute, but anybody overseas. But then the question is. Well, by what standard? And clearly they don't have the NSA, but I have to say I don't blame them. They don't have a standard. You know, so our standard as objectivists is, is this a threat to the life and property of Americans, citizens? If it is, go for it. You know, we believe in preemptive whatever, right? So, yes, listen to them, you know, do what's necessary to get the information to protect Americans. But that's it, right? It's about protecting individual rights. That's the only role of government. But all the other academics in the room with me, critics of the NSA and supporters of the NSA, all was like, they don't have that criteria. So then for them, it's like, do we listen to drug war? Oh, well, of course, drugs are evil. We have to listen to that. Or do we, what about tax evasion? Well, that's a must. Oh, you know, but we don't want to listen to, I don't know, something else. So for them, it's a political discussion about what are the, foreign policy priorities of the United States. So you mentioned economic stuff. So they listen into Brazil. Why do they listen to Brazil? Because they're in trade negotiations with Brazil. Now they'll say the NSA, we do not give information to American private companies. I believe them. They don't. But who do they give the information to? The Commerce Department. Right. And the Commerce Department is engaged with trade. And you think the Commerce Department doesn't give it to their favorite American corporations? They don't give it that information to? Exactly. I would bet your life on it. So... So again, the problem in my, you know, from, from looking at all this, the fundamental problem here is not the NSA. The fundamental problem is that we don't have a conception of the role of government. We don't have a, a proper prioritization of foreign policy. We don't have a foreign policy. We don't have a principled foreign policy. We don't have an idea what we're doing in the world. But we certainly don't have our priorities of threats. You know, so one of the things I, I almost yelled at them, I said, what the, what are you guys doing? I you know, we're in radio, so I can't say it. But what are you, what are you guys doing when, when a terrorist wants to attack the United States? You should have all your resources listening and monitoring them. Exactly. What are you putzing around with Angela Merkel's phone, you know, phone? But half the academics turn to me and say, yeah, but they have to do that. You know, this is, this is what they teach in, in political science and foreign policy stuff. So, 
the whole ideology of foreign policy, the whole way in which people look at America's role in the world, that is what is corrupt. That is what is evil. The evil is the, the, the instructions they get from, you know, from the White House. That's evil. And yes, they're doing things they shouldn't do, and those people should resign because they shouldn't be doing this stuff. This isn't what... But, you know, know they also don't understand that no. they shouldn't be doing it. They don't... They are, they are told that it's legal, yeah. and most it, people believe that the legal doctrine is correctly interpreted. I so, think that's right, yeah. but it's also true that a lot of them think that Look, 80, let's say 50% of their job is catching terrorists, which, which they do. Now, whether they catch them or not, that's a different question. But they're listening into terrorists. Um, if 50% of their job is doing that, then that's what I think motivates them to go to work, even if they have to deal with 50% crap. It's like mm-hmm. the soldiers. You know, I can't say everybody in, in the Marines should, should, you know, they should. If it were me, I have to say they should all resign, mm-hmm. right? They should all quit. Because you know what? They're being asked to do things that are horrific, and I think it's a personal sacrifice. Right. They're not they're actually defending America. They're actually sacrificing their lives. What, what are they doing it now for some Christians in Iraq? God forbid we should bomb anybody when it's in our self-interest. That if it's humanitarian, then we should go and bomb whoever needs to be bombed. So, uh, so it's... it's you know, so, so I'd like to say everybody should quit the NSA, everybody should quit the military... And in some sense, I believe that. On the other hand, there's also some real national security reasons to be in the military and to be in the NSA. So it's not it's not that simple. Now, there is this other issue of do they monitor U.S. citizens and how much do they monitor? So I, I think they I think they do other certain circumstances. So they, they clearly do when it goes to a, a, a FISA court. Right. Um, sure. You know, and, and and the standards for that court are pretty ambiguous. Right. Uh, and I'm not impressed by, by the whole legal procedure there and uh, our rights are clearly being violated by this court and by the well, NSA and then, as Well, then there's the bulk metadata collection. And then they, they have the bulk metadata collection. So what they're doing now is they're requiring the phone companies to keep the metadata for five years, although there's, there's a movement now to keep it to one and a half years, but to five years. And then what they do is they query that metadata primarily to, to abide by one of these other agendas, right, drugs, Ukraine, who knows, whatever, whatever the White House wants to know about. Um, so they query that. So it's not like they're actually looking in mine and your metadata on a regular basis. They're not, unless we come up in some query, unless the government would. Sure. Now, but we could one day. You know? so, yeah. so, so we have to talk about what's really dangerous here. But, but so it's not that they're keeping everybody's emails. I think I put up on Facebook at some point. Uh, what would you like me to ask the, the NSA? What question should I ask? And people said, Oh, get us the 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 emails from the IRS, right? Right, right. They don't have them because they don't. They really don't store them. They don't store all our emails, right? They store any email communication you might have had with somebody overseas. They might have stored, right? But if you're just communicating internally, they don't store. Now, I don't know if the FBI doesn't store them because the FBI's mandate is internal to the United States, but the NSA's mandate is overseas, is foreigners. It actually said when they get an American involved in a communication, they bring in the FBI and they hand it over to the FBI. I don't know what that means. Of course, they wouldn't elaborate. But, but the FBI is responsible for monitoring us in the United States. The NSA is, monitor, is responsible for monitoring non-American citizens. 
So what scares me about the NSA? I mean, what, what scares me right now is not that they're listening to this conversation we're having. I mean, I'm public about it. It's, it's not like they I, should it, listen to this conversation that we're having. You know, we wish. Um, <laughs> given that I was there, maybe they are listening. Um, I know they're interested. Uh, what scares me broadly is that what we're doing is we're building an infrastructure. A technological infrastructure. Now, the technological infrastructure we built even in a free society, but we're building a technological infrastructure, and we're softening up the American people for the day when an authoritarian government will use it against us. Right. And it could be, it could start like something small, like the IRS scandal. Of course. Where they use data in an inappropriate way. And then they audit the chief. And then, no, but nobody that. cares, so they say nobody cares. So let's keep doing it. But the fact that there's no big outrage about the NSA, now there's more of an outrage than, than maybe I would have expected, so they, they, it looks like Congress is going to change a few laws, although it won't make a difference because until we change our foreign policy, nothing will change. But if Americans show a tolerance towards monitoring their behavior inside the country, then next time they'll monitor a little bit more, and next time they use the data for something else, and then when the day comes, and I don't think we're there yet, but in the decades to come, as we approach authoritarianism, when the day comes when a dictator says, well, now I'm listening to all your phone calls, I'm monitoring all your emails, we'll say, okay, well, we know that, right? And, and everybody will, will shrug, everybody will, will not care anymore because they'll have softened up the culture so much that it won't matter. And I think this is the technique. Remember how we got the welfare state, right? Ayn Rand talks about this. Right. If they had said... What we want is to socialize everything. What we want is socialized medicine. Right. Then everybody goes, no, we're going to fight socialized medicine. But what if they say, oh, no, no, we just want socialized medicine for poor people, right. for kids, mm -hmm. and then five years later for old people, and then five years after that for the people who are not quite kids and not quite old and not quite this and not quite that, and then it's incremental and slowly comes, and then one day you wake up and you got socialized medicine, and you didn't even know it's here because that's what we have today. It's the frog in the pot of water, basically. It's the frog in the pot of water, yes. and that's what scares me about the NSA more than anything. And this now, is why we need to speak up. There's, there's a couple things. Now, you were sort of implying that the danger is they have all this data, and then they're going to use this data to do further things to you. But there is a harm just in the fact of other people having this data and you being aware in general that there's all of your personal life accessible to other people. So oh. the, even if they, I mean, you know, you can't do this. You, you, there is unity of the virtues, right? So you're not going to have a government that collects every single bit of detail about us or always has access to it and then is not going to do anything with it. That's not going to exist. But even if... They didn't do anything. It would still be a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, so let's... let's Two things. First, they're not collecting it. I'm, I'm pretty confident at this point. Well, but they have access to it, right? They so could. They could collect it. Well, and, and they can grab book. it. They can get it very yeah. easily because well, of the third-party doctrine. They made a data. Doctrine they can. Yes, yeah. and then the third-party doctrine plus. You share it. They have the technology yeah. now that they can they can get anything on you. My point is, they don't have it. They're not storing all our data, all our emails somewhere. They're not monitoring our emails right now. But they could. It would be easy for them. All you need is a slight change of the law. And it might even be in secret, right? So two points here. Uh, so I'll, get to, I'll get to your question in a second. Let me make this point. In my view, the, the government should be open. 99.9% .9 of all government activities should be done in the open. Mm -hmm. on, it is the government's responsibility. The burden of proof is on the government. 
regarding what should be kept secret. So uh, they, they need to be able to argue that this has to be secret for financial defense reasons, and it's the only reason it could be kept secret. So the, the assumption today is everything's secret, and then you have to file a, you know, a special thing. What's it called? A, a public... Uh, oh, oh, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, Freedom of Information Act. Freedom of Information Act, Act yeah. to yeah. get it. It should be the other way around. Right. They, so the, the government is our government. They shouldn't be keeping secrets. They're our agents. It's, it would be like you hiring a lawyer to act on your behalf, and the lawyer saying, everything's secret. If you want to know what I'm doing, you have to ask, and then I'll decide whether to tell you or not. No, the assumption is the opposite. Everything they do should be out in the open, and then a few things should be secret. So that's the start. Now, absolutely, think about it this way. Imagine you're living in a house, and, and a guy, you notice somebody snooping around in your backyard looking through your window. Now, he does this every day. Mm-hmm. He never breaks the window. Right. He never takes your stuff. Right. But he's just standing around looking through your window into your house. Now, you would call the police immediately. Mm-hmm. It, it, even though he looks harmless... Even if it were a 10-year-old kid and he did it every day, you would call the police. You would stop it, right? Even if though it didn't seem like a threat, you have a right to your property and you have a right, if you don't want to be seen by somebody on your property, not to be seen by somebody. It's, it's, it's invasive. It's an invasion of your space, of your property. So it's wrong. Now imagine if that person was, um, was wearing a AK-47. Mm-hmm. Uh, with bullets, uh, maybe an RPG, carrying an RPG in their hand. Now, they weren't using them. No. They weren't pointing the gun at you, no. but they were carrying them. Would you call the police? Well, absolutely. Now, imagine if the police was doing it. It was a policeman out there. Who would you call? So, so this is the thing. When the government is snooping, they have a gun. First of all, they're snooping, right. which, which Nobody should be snooping in my stuff, right? I don't want people snooping in their stuff unless I allow them to snoop in my stuff. It's my stuff, right? Second, they're armed. But government is force. Government is force. So anything government does involves a gun. There's nothing, nothing a government does that does not involve an F-15, right? Right. So, so there's a tank outside in your backyard snooping in through your window, Right. And, and this is the scary part. There's nobody to call. You can't call the cops to get rid of them. So this is why this is, this is a thousand times worse than Google snooping on you. Yes. Even though I don't think yes. Google should snoop and, on you right. unless you've given them permission no, to snoop this, on this, you. No, but this is the point that I make in my book, right? Because as much as Google or Amazon or the different various companies are gathering information about you, there is only one entity who has the legal authority to forcibly integrate all this data and put you into the equivalent of that Bentham panopticon, you know, where they look at you from all the different angles. Because Obama, he just takes out his pen and his phone, and then suddenly this agency is sharing information with that agency, and they can put a lot of information about you together, and it's like the policeman watching you all the time. I mean, it's the virtual equivalent of that. So only government can do that. Yeah, only government can do that, but it's more than that. Government is a gun. Yes. So Google and Google, Google and Amazon can have their data, and they, you know they can send me ads, they can do stuff, and I can actually shield myself. Or I cannot use Google; I can use somebody else. So I have choices, right? Mm-hmm. And it's voluntary, and they they can only use economic power on me, right? They can only offer me stuff, and maybe they can sell my data to somebody else who also offers me stuff, right? But they can't pull a gun on me. 
They can drag me to jail. They can say, you violated regulation 2325732, which I've never heard of, which relates to, you know, what you can and cannot say two days after you visited the NSA. Who knows? You know, now we're not quite at that level of authoritarianism, but if you're in finance like I am, and like maybe many of our listeners are, you know that the level of regulation, particularly post-Dodd-Frank, is so intense that almost all of us are probably violating something out there. And this is, again, Ayn Rand talked about this, how, you know, authoritarians want to leave laws and rules ambiguous and so on. Now, let me just say... And contradictory, and contradictory. Even, yeah. Let me just say, you know, I have read Snowden's documents. Um, but, you know, I, I would argue that those documents can be interpreted differently than the way Greenwald is, is, is interpreting them or is even Snowden is interpreting them. And I, you know, I can't prove this and I have no idea and I might be wrong, but I, I do not believe that they are, they are not storing the emails of American citizens. They're storing the emails of everybody else. I, I'll give you some examples, right? There were, there were stories about some examples where interpretation makes a difference, right? So there were stories about the U.S. snooping on hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen, right, mm-hmm. and, and collecting all this data, and the French government was all upset. Well, the story is, of course, that the French government asked us in the name of their national security <laughs> right. because they're not allowed to snoop. On the, this is some of the sneaky stuff they do, right? right? So the French can't snoop on their own citizens, so they asked the NSA to snoop on their citizens through the White House, so the NSA is snooping on the French citizens on behalf of the French government, who then, of course, accuses the NSA of, I mean, and of course, so the NSA might, for who we know, be asking the British to snoop on us. Uh, the NSA has a special relationship with Britain, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, New Zealand, Canada, what's the, Australia, mm-hmm. right? That they have very, very close, tight-knit relationship with those four countries, so that they, all the snooping they do together and it could be that those other countries have all my emails. Right. I believe the NSA doesn't. But it could be that the British have them. Because well, it wouldn't be against the law for the British to have all my and, emails. And there's, there's kind of a, a real gap right now. And I think some of the courts are trying to resolve it in terms of what happens to our stored communications and what qualifies as stored. And where your emails are, in some circuits they're very protected, in some circuits not. So that's, that's a whole different issue. But, you know, an, an, another thing with this, the, you know, with the third-party doctrine, right, you, once you give the information to that third party, the government can get it at any time. It's not protected by the Fourth Amendment. So we know that they're collecting metadata on everybody. We know that the data that is being stored by all the various companies that we do business with, and we do so much of our lives is on the internet now, that all of that is accessible and you don't have to have probable cause or particularized suspicion for government to get their hands on it. And that's if that's they use the, the FISA court, and the question is, what are the standards at the FISA court? And none of us know that. Well, they're lower than probable cause and particularized suspicion. They're, they're lower than that, yes. although they're trying to change that, and they should change it at probable right. cause. Um, yeah, I mean, the FISA court, and, but, but, but whatever the standard is, it relates to what? Right? Can, they, can they do it on the basis as with the FISA court? I mean, we don't know anything. This is the problem. The FISA court shouldn't be secret. Uh, I mean, maybe some of the proceedings yeah, should be like, secret. You know, there's, there's language like reasonable suspicion or whatever, but the point is, is that... Reasonable suspicion of what, though? 
reasonable suspicion that the information they're going to get is related to an investigation that's ongoing. I mean, it's it's really yes. vague language, yes. right? So, and that to me is the problem. The problem is that, that these laws need to be, and this is the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act needs to be scrapped. It, it never should have been passed, given the context of what of American foreign policy at the time. And again, this goes to the same issue. If war had been declared after 9/11, if an enemy had been identified. If victory had been defined, you pass a law for the time, for wartime, that relates to protecting the lives and property of Americans. And then once the war ends, the law goes away, then fine. Then fine. But war was never declared. We passed a law with no ending. They keep renewing it, and it's purposefully ambiguous. Right. They can do whatever the hell they want with it. Right. So the problem is here, the Patriot Act, the problem is the laws, the problem fundamentally is... The, the, the misidentification of the role of government and fundamentally is the fact that we have no foreign policy, that we refuse to identify enemies, and our government refuses to do the very few things it's supposed to do, which is protect us. Are those phone calls? Or? Um, these are not phone calls. Oh, okay. Those are just audio clips sitting there in I'm the Blog Talk studio. We do have a number of comments here okay. in the chat room, and I think you've been looking at some of them, right, yeah, about the fact of whether... You know, I'm kind of blind and I'm sitting away from the screen. Co- ...collecting the uh, the data and such. Um, it says a common... So let me just say about the book. Should we talk about... What's the, what's uh, what's his name? Greenwald's book? Greenwald's book, right? What's so, it called? Um, no Place to Hide. No Place to Hide. Because I see somebody citing No Place to Hide. So let me say something mm-hmm. about Greenwald's book. So, you know, I think what Snowden did is terrific. I'm all for it. I think it's changed people's attitudes towards this. I think there's a chance some of these laws are going to change. I think there is some outrage. So I'm 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 huge fan of what Snowden did. I think it was vital. And you can see it. The NSA, the NSA, they're petrified of Snowden. They're scared. Uh, they're scared of 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 what he has. Uh, you know, he's released about 300 documents. He has 1.7 million documents that he stole from the NSA. It just tells you something about their cybersecurity. It's a little spooky. So um, so there is so so I, I think I think what Snowden did is terrific and I think it's it's uh, it's having a, an incredibly positive impact. Greenwald on the other hand is a major league scumball. Yes. I mean this guy is an evil bastard and in reading the book no place to hide. You can tell he's anti-American. He's anti-anything we do, even when it's in self-defense. He's, he, he's, a, he's a radical anti-American leftist. And I think, uh, and I think you, have to, you have to be very wary when you read that book of, of, his, of how he's interpreting the, the, the documents that he's publishing. But even when you read the published documents, uh, you, you know, you have to you have to read them. You have to read them, and, and there's always a context. Now, again, I'm not saying that the documents are wrong, and I'm not saying I'm an expert on all those documents. But, you know, I, I am not, I do not believe, again, I do not believe the, the, the interpretations of some people where, you know, there's massive storage, and I don't well, think it's happening. And, and, as, and I, I, as I understand yeah. Snowden's own attitude, he thought that the people who worked with him at the NSA were well-meaning, they were some in some cases weak, they were unwilling to expose to the public the things he needed to have exposed, but I don't see the venom, you know, against our country in Snowden himself that you see in 
Greenwald. No, I've seen an interview with Snowden on NBC. I think you referred me to it, Amy. And, and in fact, yeah, I was very impressed. I mean, yeah. he's very well-spoken. He strikes me as very smart and very concerned about America. I don't think he hates America, but Greenwald does. And, and it's not just he's a utilitarian. He's a, what if somebody's writing there? He's a, he's a Noam Chomsky acolyte. He really is. And Noam Chomsky, if you know, is, is probably the most evil intellectual alive today. Um, it, it, and and so, so these guys are really haters, haters of, um, uh, of America and of, of American Israel, self-defense. Israel, certainly, too. And certainly of Israel. And we can talk about Israel in a little while. Um, and I don't have the book with me, so uh, I'll look it up when I get home, page, uh, page 110. I'm getting referenced here. But, I, but I've... I've gone over. I've gone over thing, and I, I've got a page, which, uh, screwingly enough, I did not bring with me, uh, that the NSA uh, gave me, where they take those pages and they have their, if you will, spin on it, right, and their interpretation of of the documents and what they mean and what they say. But I, I left it. I left it in the office at home, so I don't have that. I mean, the fact the fact of the matter is, is that they are What's collecting. Uh, Noam Chomsky said the same of Ayn Rand. Yeah, he literally said, Ayn Rand, in my opinion, is the most evil figure in modern intellectual history. Yeah, I mean, from Noam Chomsky's perspective, you you know, that's right. But uh, we know that there's such a thing as objective truth and objective reality, and Noam Chomsky is wrong, and it's indeed flippant on it. It's, it's him. And I'm not saying human history. Uh, oh, modern intellectual history. Yeah, you know, there are a few comp- comp- there's some competition in modern intellectual history, but certainly alive today. I don't know anybody more uh, more evil uh, I- than Noam Chomsky. And one of the most horrific statistics I know of is that uh, Chomsky is probably the most cited professor in America today. So there is nobody more influential in academia uh, today than Noam Chomsky. But in terms of his ideas, look, put aside what you think about America and so on. Noam Chomsky defended the Cameroons, and this comes up just because there was the, the verdict yesterday, I think, on, on, the, on the two Cameroons leaders who were sent to life in prison. Noam Chomsky was a Cameroons apologist. The Cameroons killed 1.7 million people. That's my being a Hitler apologist. There's no difference. He, and, and you would easily, everybody would jump up. If there was a Hitler apologist anywhere, you'd jump up and condemn him to the heaven. But if you're a communist, or if you're an egalitarian, right. Ah, so 1.7 million died. Who cares, right? That, we, we, we don't jump up and condemn those. But, but Noam Chomsky is objectively an evil person. And, and uh, you know, the Cambodians killed 40% of the Cambodian population in the name of egalitarianism, in the name of the ideas that Noam Chomsky believes in. And that's why he was an apologist for them. And, and, and it's only recently that he's withdrawn that because he realizes how, how evil that makes him look. But, but it doesn't, doesn't matter. He is what he is. Well, in Greenwald, following in his shoes, I saw a post on his new Intercept blog the other day, and he kept repeatedly referring to Israel as the aggressor in this conflict with Hamas, which is just disgusting. Well, it's, it's worse than that. I mean, he, 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 the stuff he calls Israel and the way he deals with it and the way he understands the whole Middle East conflict is a hatred of the good for being the good. It's it's the way so many people on the radical left and on the kind of anarchist libertarian strain view Israel. I mean, they hate Israel. It, it's not it's not an issue of analysis. It's an issue of really of, of real hatred. I apologize for going to Glenn Greenwald's talk. You know, I apologize. Oh, someone here, Peacock. Hello, everyone. I wonder who that is. Peacock in the chat room isn't me. I don't know who it is. 
but <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Um, yeah, exactly. We want to know, Peacock, are you Leonard? <laughs> I don't know if Leonard Peacock would be listening right now. Would he, he might be, but I don't know. I don't know that'd be on the chat. Yeah, I'm not sure that. But you if know it's you, Leonard, please identify yourself. Yeah, that would that would be wonderful if someone's showing you how to yeah. how to get in here. So, so as I said, I'm less concerned right now about being listened to, about being monitored. Not that I, I, I don't, I, because I don't think it's happening right now. I, the capability is there. It could happen easily with a court order, which where the standards are ridiculous. Standards set up, by, by the way, by George Bush and, and by Republicans. So this isn't a Republican-Democrat thing. They're both, you know, wrong here. They're both, this, is, this is evil from both the perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's no accident that the biggest defenders of the NSA are bipartisan. It's both Republican and Democrat. Mm-hmm. Uh, what scares me is that nobody seems to care. What scares me is this is this is a step in the direction of totalitarianism, and that it, it, it's not many steps removed from totalitarianism. This is very close to right. This is 1984. They're monitoring everything you do. They're monitoring. I mean, right. they can turn off your take. They can access your cell phone and they mm-hmm. can turn it on and listen to you. Right now, oh, Amy has a camera on her on her monitor. She has it covered. I wonder if she's worried about the NSA turning it on and watching her. <laughs> because they could be. I mean, that's the level of technology right. that they have. Right. So it's very much a 1984 kind of situation where they have the, the capacity, the capability of, of, of really listening in and monitoring you. And that is unbelievably scary. And, and as we, you know, people talk about technology as freeing us, and in a sense it does, and and, and technology is wonderful, and maybe some of the encryption that's coming out of the private enterprise will save us. Right. But the fact is that the technology also makes us incredibly connected, also makes it possible for the government to reach in and access our entire lives. I mean, this was the importance of that Supreme Court case about uh, searching a, somebody's cell phone, right? And, and the idea was that they couldn't, because they made a stop, they couldn't just start searching somebody's well, cell phone. Well, they, they, they couldn't search it incident to arrest. But it, it, it's kind of a different issue, right? Because, and... No, but the point is, the point I'm making is, never in human history have you carried so much of who you are and in what you pocket, are... In your pocket, right, right. And that is something that the court pocket, recognized. connected right. to right. everything. So right. it's not just in your pocket, because if it's on a cell phone, it's in the cloud. If it's in the cloud, it's accessible to the NSA. Whether they're monitoring it right now or not, it's accessible to the NSA. Yeah. So... More than ever, more than ever in human history, we need to be vigilant about what our government is doing because our government has more potential power over our lives through technology than ever before. If you think about the Middle Ages, there's only so much they control, they could control about your life because you were out in a little village in the middle of nowhere and you saw a government inspector once every, you know. Now they can literally be in your life every single second of your life. They can be not only listening to you, they can, be, they can be watching you, they can be monitoring everything that you do. And, you know, you're seeing already in England, right, they have cameras. If you're in England, if you're in London, right. everything you do is being watched if you're out in the public, right? Everything you do in the public streets of London, there's a camera watching you. Um, and, and the British don't care anymore, and that's, that's my point. When you stop caring... You're basically saying to the totalitarians, right, it's okay. And well, and moreover, there is a degradation, I think, yes. of human 
life and society in a place where you say, oh, I'm being watched all the time, but I don't care. I mean, I, I brought yep. this up before, but when I was young, I thought, well, I never want to have a romantic relationship or even a very close friendship with anyone who's really religious. And the reason was I didn't feel like I could relate to somebody who believed that there was someone watching over them all the time. That's literally how I used to think about it, that that was such an alien framework, that I was an atheist. I didn't believe in the, you know, there's this God watching me. And now we all have this sense that maybe we're being watched, you know, and, and, we, and we joke about it And they have the potential for it, and, they, and, oh, yeah. and certainly have the potential for it. And, and given the kind of people that exist in Washington today, you know, I wouldn't. You never know, right? You never know when they'll use it, how they use it. And one of the scary things about the NSA, and this is a good thing about Snowden, is that when I push them, right? Don't you guys ever say to the White House, like, look, guys, tapping Angela Merkel's phone, you know, that's not really. And they go, no, it's not our job, right? And that's scary, right? Just so, but what they did orders, say, right? what they did yeah. say is because of Snowden, because of all the public scrutiny. They are now willing to go back to the White House and say, wait a minute, do you realize what you're really asking for? And that's a good thing. Again, bringing this stuff out into the light only does good. Now, let's quickly address this national security issue. What national security issue? Again, I don't see anything that's been revealed so far that would change a terrorist behavior, that would change what the terrorists, terrorists know they're being listened to. The terrorists know their emails are being watched. They're using the highest forms of encryption probably because of Now, sometimes they're stupid, but they're so stupid that telling them that we're doing this won't change their behavior. Yeah. So, and when I push the NSA on, okay, what, where's Snowden? Where's the evidence of Snowden doing evidence harm, of, yeah, right? right? There was nothing. Now, they are worried because they believe that some of the stuff that he has could put people at home. But the fact is that hasn't been released yet, and who knows if it ever will be. But the fact is that so far they have not been able to show or say in a, in a, credible, way that does a, in a credible way that he has caused real harm to their ability to protect Americans from real danger. Maybe right. he's caused harm to our relationship with, with Brazil. Maybe he's caused harm to our relationship with Germany, but I don't really care because neither of those I mean, relate to the role of government as protecting our lives and property. Well, and I mean, you know, let's think of, I'm, I'm feeling like an analytic philosopher, but I just had a fantastic example come to my mind. Suppose we had this wonderful weapon that really great, gave us a great advantage over our enemies, whoever you want to call our enemy this week. And making that weapon required that we grind up babies in a meat grinder or something. You know, not like I mean, Captain America in the last, the last movie? Wasn't that like that well, big weapon that was, was going to kill everybody? Well, something. But I mean, the point is, is if, if we're getting a military advantage by doing something that we should not be doing that requires the violation of rights, then forget it. It still needs to be blown up. And so even if there was some harm done by what Snowden did, and I think Snowden took steps to minimize that harm as far as I can tell. I'm hoping that Greenwald keeps all of his pacts with Snowden, you know, all through here on out. But so far, I think Snowden has taken those precautions to not do harm. But even if there is some harm, it, it has to be done because we've got to blow yeah. up what the government's doing. I agree with that. And again, this is my point about declaring war and declaring an enemy and declaring mm -hmm. victory, what victory looks like. If you do that and it's finite time, then there's certain things you can do, you know, during war, and we've done it in, in previous wars, that you don't do in peacetime. But no war has been declared. 
No, what we say, yes. Yeah, so, so somebody says Al Qaeda might have changed its its uh, use of encrypted information. If everything I've read about Al Qaeda in the past suggested that if you're a member with Bin Laden, they never used any form of communication other than written notes transferred by um, courier, and that's one of the reasons it took them ten years to find Bin Laden. Uh, they they have been super super careful and under the assumption that e- they, that the, everything is being listened to, even their burners, even the the burner cell phones are being listened to. So I don't believe this now. Are there new cells that are more amateurish that maybe after Snowden changed? Maybe. But you know what? So be it. Um, the fact is that, uh, that the government shouldn't be doing this stuff secretly. If, you know, if they want to listen to American citizens because it's an issue of national defense, they should tell us. They should come to the American people and say, this is what we're going to be doing. And but then if they're going to do it, they'd have to say we're going to do it for a very short period of time. You exactly. Know? It's a wartime. It's, it's and like here's what you see what, in the Batman movie. You know, exactly. Batman listens to all of Gotham for five minutes to find the guys that are going to blow the place up or whatever. You know, okay, fine. But uh, this ongoing routine metadata collection is wrong. Now let me ask you this one question. Uh, when I went to go listen to Greenwald, one thing that struck me is that when he was talking about solutions to the problem, he talked about, oh, foreign governments will put pressure on the United States to clean up their act. Or um, uh, No, because he's, he's concerned about us monitoring foreign citizens. He doesn't care about Americans. This is the problem with Greenwald, right? No foreign government is going to put pressure on the United States to clean up their act in terms of monitoring U.S. citizens. True. Right? Germany has no incentive to, to, to protect us. The problem with Greenwald is, again, you have to, you have to, you have to realize his frame of mind. He believes it's the United States' responsibility not to monitor anybody. Right. And, and therefore, the, the cleanup direct means we'll stop reading the emails of Pakistanis. Well, I don't want the government to stop reading emails of Pakistanis. No, and, and he put that list Saudi. out of the people he said were unfairly targeted, and a bunch of them had suspicion on them. So it was. Yeah, uh, I don't, you know, so I don't yeah. trust Greenwald. No, no so, but then the other thing he said, yeah. he said, okay, well, you know, you can't trust Congress. And then there's another solution, which is encryption. But he never once mentioned the court system and actually reforming legal doctrine as a viable solution. And I think that's a huge omission, the idea that he doesn't even trust the U.S. court system to, for example, hear these cases that are coming up on the third-party doctrine and maybe change their mind about what the government can collect without a warrant. That's just completely not on his radar. The government shouldn't be allowed to collect anything. But I mean, what do you think Without about what do you, what do you think about rejecting the court system as a potential well, way to redeem but, this? You know, but again, remember who Greenwald is. I'm not surprised. Right. I mean, wh- look, this is a philosophical battle. We know this. This is not going to change. You know, there might be a backlash now, and and uh, Congress might do something that makes it a little bit better. But in in two years, there'll be a terrorist attack, and they'll go right back to making it much much worse. So what needs the battle fundamentally is, in a sense, a legal battle, but it's really a battle about individual rights. It's about the role of government. That's the fundamental battle. Right. The fundamental battle is to define the role of government and then to construct legal doctrine consistent with the fundamental role of government rather than the legal doctrine that exists today that violates the fundamental role of government. And that's the battle. It's a philosophical, political, long-term, ethical battle about what American government should and shouldn't be doing. And... Greenwald can't conceive of that. But I mean, you know, for, for example, do. you just mentioned the cell phone case, right? Yeah. Where the Supreme Court justices are, in this opinion, recognizing how much information is stored 
in our cell phones. And by, you know, they would also say it's all stored in the cloud and everything else. All this issue is going to come up when these cases that are in the Court of Appeals right now, one that said that the NSA bulk metadata collection does violate the Fourth Amendment. Another one says, no, it's perfectly fine, 9-11, blah, blah, blah. So, so this is going to come before the Supreme Court. There's, I think, a decent chance that they might fundamentally change this field of law. But you think no? I doubt it. I, I, I doubt that they would change it fundamentally. And even if they did... I think they would leave it to the. They would leave enough loopholes for the legislature to come back. And again, the next terrorist attack, the legislature would come right. back and do a new Patriot Act. And this time, they would be more explicit. And a lot of times, the Supreme Court, the loopholes they find uh, around that the legislature wasn't, wasn't specific enough in terms of its intent. But it's very rare that the Supreme Court actually overturns a law that is clear, right? That, right. Where the language is very clear. Even this latest thing about Obamacare, that the Supreme Court might overturn a piece of it, is like this ambiguity about what did they mean about the... About well, the, it's pretty clear because of the issue of a state. Like, yes. what is a state? Yeah, so, what is yeah. a state? But, but it's like, we know, what they, we know what Congress intended, right? So it's, it's, it's a technicality. Instead of ruling that the law is unconstitutional because it violates individual rights because it's... Forces us to buy forces stuff. Forces us to yeah, buy stuff yeah. or, it, or it violates, the, it regulates an industry, shouldn't be right, regulated, right. or a number of other things that you could argue are unconstitutional. They come up with these technicalities. And that's what worries me is that they won't overturn it in a way that really changes legal doctrine and therefore makes it impossible for Congress yeah, to get around Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they could, for instance, say, oh, the third-party doctrine is still here, but it do- doesn't apply to this tiny little corner of something and go yeah. go at that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So in sum, then, you went to the NSA, and how did it change your thinking? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll say this. I, I counter to what some people are writing here on the thing. I'm less concerned right now about being monitored than I was before. I, before I would have said, oh yeah, they've got every single email I've ever written. They they listen to every call I take, and they're they're constantly monitoring me. I don't think that's true. Uh, so I I think I think I, I I to me it was pretty the the one unequivocal thing that I got out of it is that that they're, that they're not monitoring me. It doesn't mean they're not monitoring some Americans that they're not accumulating some emails, but they're not doing it in mass. They're not being there's there's there is metadata being held at the phone companies, and they have access to it with a court order. I'm probably not being targeted right now. It doesn't solve the problem that I could be targeted tomorrow, that they could be accumulating my email tomorrow if for some reason Obama decided I was a threat. That they, you know, so fundamentally nothing's changed. I'm still opposed. And again, I go back to this principle of secrecy. And this, this should work. Oh, they should have to make the argument why it's secret. Now, I know it's hard to make an argument why something should be secret without revealing information that threatens whatever. Right. But it's their burden. The burden is on them. It's on the government. The government should have every single document in the government declassified unless they can to some, create some mechanism to show why it has to be classified. Now, and, and, and there's a lot of stuff that should be the names of oper- operators overseas. Right. But, for example, stuff that the CIA did 50 years ago should all be in the public domain. Stuff they probably did, a lot of the stuff they did 20 years ago should all be in the public domain. So, so the whole, but the problem is that the, the, the government today operates the opposite. Everything is secret, and you have to make the case that something should be opened up. And this is horrific, and this is, and it's not national defense. Let me make one other point because this has come up kind of in discussions. Um, 
you can't trust these guys. Now, it used to be the case that um, I would say, you know, if somebody from the Pentagon said something, they really, what they're concerned about is national defense and therefore, you know, I don't trust them anymore. I, after, after 9-11, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, I don't trust these guys. It's too political. The whole, the, 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 there's a difference, but the difference is not big enough anymore between the Pentagon and the EPA. I don't trust anything the EPA says. The government bureaucrats. Right. I think the Pentagon is being politicized to the same extent, or, or to some extent, maybe not exactly the same extent. I don't trust them. I think they follow orders. They follow orders that are driven by the White House. Well, and they're philosophically poisoned. They're as well. philosophically yeah. poisoned. The people in the White House send them orders that are corrupt. Look at what's going on now with the bombing in Iraq, which is ridiculous. I mean, I would bomb them. I, I, I mean, from my perspective, wipe ISIS out. Because of the threat to the United States, not because mm-hmm. there's some humanitarian crisis. Um, it's driven by altruism. It's driven, you know, the whole, the whole worship of General Petraeus, who I think was awful and, and was responsible for the deaths of many American soldiers because of his whole way of thinking about war, the whole just war theory mm-hmm. that he advocated for. It, so when, when, when somebody from the Pentagon or somebody from the military today says this is necessary for national security, I'm sorry, I don't trust them anymore. Right. I, I used to, I have to admit, and, and I know this makes me sound a little libertarian, and, and, I, and I, I don't like that fact, because they, they hate government so much that they don't trust anything they say, but the fact is that as our government becomes more statist, more corrupt, more infringing on our rights, the more I hate them. It's not that I hate government qua government. I believe, like Ayn Rand believed, that government is a necessary good. Right. But this government, particularly with Obama, but, but Bush as well, I hated Bush. I literally, if another Bush runs, if Jed Bush runs against, uh, I'm voting for Hillary. So you heard it here first. Wow. Um, <laughs> I hate the Bush family. I, I, me and Leonard, I think, are the only people. But after what Bush did in Iraq, I blame him for the deaths of, of, of thousands of young kids. Um, so to me... You know, to me, I, I can't believe these people. So when, when a Pentagon person says Snowden has placed the, the, the American security, national security at risk, I don't, I don't believe, believe him. No, I don't believe him either. anymore. He would have to prove that to me. And you still don't believe it. So that's good. So the NSA did not have you drink any Kool-Aid in any way, shape, or form. No, yeah. I, I will say I, I have I have respect for the people who work there because I think they, they, well, they probably Well, and Snowden care. had limited respect yeah. for them, and, too. And I, so. But I do think there is an element of... Uh, we get our orders and we follow them, which is always scary, right? Because th- that's what the Nazis said. They now I'm not comparing the NSA to, to the SS or anything like that. Please don't say I did. Mm-hmm. But I am saying there's a certain element of we follow orders, which is a little scary. I did challenge them on that, and they told me that because of Snowden, that mentality has changed a little bit. So there's another good thing Snowden has done. He's, he's forced the NSA, he's challenged the NSA to say, wait a minute, should we be doing this? even if it is our orders, should we be pushing it upstairs right. and saying, hey, do you know what this really means? Are you sure we want us to do well, this? Well, and, and he doubled down recently, too. He said, hey, if I wind up in Guantanamo at some point, then I'm not going to feel horrible about that. That was interesting as well. Um, you want me to read this one? Yeah, it's a yeah. long okay. uh, John says, my concern, he says, what if there emerges a political figure who challenges the regime 
and may win a critical state in an election. I don't believe the NSA or FBI would hesitate to spy on that person and ruin his reputation. Well, but look, the FBI's been doing this forever. So, or so some of us talk about Roberts, the Supreme Court judge, that the reason he voted uh, yeah. you know, in favor of yeah. Obamacare and that bizarrely yeah. uh, but let's remember, opinion let's remember, the NSA. Let's remember FBI's been doing this forever, right? right? Who was the FBI chief for 50 years? Hoover? J. Edgar Hoover? J. Edgar Hoover had a file in every Supreme Court judge. He had a file in every politician. They were listening to phone calls. So there's nothing new here other than it's easier for them to access even more information. It's, it's just as scary, and I, I agree with you, that it, they have the capacity, right. and J. Edgar Hoover used that capacity. He used it for 50 years, 50 years where we were freer than we are today. So today it would be easier for them, and they have the technology that makes it. A, I mean, they had a file on Martin Luther King. They had a file on Ayn Rand, mm-hmm. right? So they were doing this stuff. Uh, they were doing this stuff, uh, 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 spying on every, everybody who was significant, Supreme Court judges, activists, and so on. So this isn't new. I mean, this is spooky, right? But, but it's not new, and it's wrong. And, the, and again, the problem is that we didn't get, get upset when J. Hoover did it. We're not upset now when the NSA is doing it, and it's only going to get worse. And this is what this is what John here in the chat room. His name is John Roberts. Yeah. He says, "For the record, I am a retired nurse, not the Supreme Court justice." Oh, too bad! I would have loved for John Roberts, the Supreme Court justice, to be listening to us. That's we true. would have said a lot of different things, and we would have really got after the bastard. <laughs> um, so, it's uh, so yeah. I, I think we should be scared, but I guess my point is that. I'm not, uh, you know, one of these radio shows, we're going to have to talk about my experience with, with the Israeli shin bet. Uh-huh. Although I don't know if that should be on radio because, anyway, we should do it. What the hell? Where they really were listening to me mm. and where they really were probably following me around or where, wow. they, where they really did interrogate me, right, about my objectivism. Okay. So, and that was when I was a kid. I was 21 years old and skid shitless, right? Because, I mean, it was scary. These guys, this is shit bad. To My mom told me I was going to be on a list because I, I mistakenly yeah. registered as a libertarian years and years ago. She says, don't do that. You're going to be on a list. Well, they stole, the shit bad stole a list that we were passing around of objectivists and I'll end up being interrogated over it. Wow. And, and, and they're much tougher than the FBI oh, or yeah. the NSA oh, combined. Yeah. So, that you know, these are the guys who really go after terrorists and, and are really spooky. So, I, you know, as I've lived it, I, I know it, but I'm, I don't have that sense in, in America today that's happening yet. I do know that that capacity exists and it could flip like that. Uh, you know, uh, the FBI had a file on how it's used. That's right. They're, so, look, this is not unprecedented what's going on today. What's unprecedented is the capacity to, at a flip of a switch, literally really something simple to access everything, you've, everything you're doing, everything you've ever done, every bank record you have. I mean, I have everything on my phone. I can access my bank. I shouldn't say this, but you know, I, everything, right? If you could access my phone and you can access my passwords, you, you, can have, you have access to everything. I mean, what, what I, Hoover I, I probably spent years collecting. I keep passwords only my brain for that reason. No, all my yeah. passwords. Are, if, 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 if Hoover, what, what it took Hoover years to accumulate, he can now, he, he can now get like this. So what, Ed Powell agrees with me that... Uh, 
He says uh, people at the NSA are patriotic yeah. Americans who want only to protect the country, but they still collect information they are asked to collect and turn it over to federal law enforcement agencies, most of which are illegitimate. Is I think yeah, I think illegitimate yeah. in the sense of individual rights. I think that's right. Exactly. And I think the problem is, and this is true of most patriotic Americans, is that they don't know what that means, and that they don't know what America means, and they don't know what it, what what the role of government qua America means, and that's a government that protects individual rights and does nothing else. And that's the essence of what Americanism is. And to be patriotic means to love that conception of government in America, right? And, and when that government starts deviating away from that conception of government, as it has for 100 years and is accelerating doing that, you can't be patriotic. You, 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 it's hard to be patriotic. You, you, your patriotism becomes nostalgia, right? Right. Right. Your patriotism is nostalgia for the founding fathers, nostalgia for uh, uh, an America that was, but is slowly drifting away. Well, and this is the point that I've brought up when we've had these repeated discussions of, is it time to leave and give up on the United States? You know, there is not a duty to stick with it like a sinking ship, right? But, I mean, I, I understand you agree that we're not there yet. Um, well, look, there's no duty to do anything, right? Yeah, yeah. So if, if you could find a, a better life in New Zealand, you should go tomorrow. Uh, the, the, the question is now, the question ultimately is, where, given your values and given your life, where's the best place in the universe to live? And if you find somebody better, I moved because I thought United my life States would be better States. here. But if it turns out tomorrow that I think my life would be better in New Zealand, I'm not, I'm, I'm not my love for America is not such that I would sacrifice my happiness for the sake of staying here. If I thought I could be happy in New Zealand, I wouldn't. So I don't believe in, in that kind of patriotism ever, right? Y your only uh, duty, if you will, duty in quotes, right. is to yourself. Right. It's to your happiness. It's to your prosperity. So go, you know, and, and I, I still think that it was a good move to come to the United States. I think, I think it's panned out pretty well for me. I can't complain. Um, <laughs> But if, if to my, I thought Israel was a better place to live, or if I thought New Zealand was a better place to live, I'd go. I mean, uh, given everything, everything, you know, given family and everything that's related to living in a particular place. Now, people who are it's not tuning only in, about the politics. It's why we live in California, right? If uh, it was just about yeah. the politics, we wouldn't live in California. No, we would not. We would not. It's pretty much about the weather. The weather is an important value. Yes. Weather, uh, lifestyle, right. culture. There, there are other things that, right. you know atmosphere california has a certain vibe to it which which i like in, in spite of the politics in some ways definitely those of you who are just tuning in you've been listening to dr Jerome brook he's executive director of the ayn rand institute and i want to shift topics here i think we've done enough on the nsa or do you have a follow-up here in the chat room that you want to take a peek at what are you squinting at here oh you know new zealand is a, too subservient they have a subject mentality because they were part of the empire. Not all of them. I know some New Zealanders who are activists. I, I don't know. But yeah. New Zealand has th these attributes, and then we'll shift to another topic. It's got weather similar to California. Right. It's beautiful. It might be the most beautiful place on the planet. Uh, they speak English. They have sheep. I love lamb. Mm. Yeah, right. And they have a lot of sheep. And... Um, and they're actually moving politically in the right direction. They're, 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 their they're economy. freer on the economic index. Right. Than economic index mm -hmm. is number three in the world. We're number 18 right. in the world. And they're moving in the right direction. We're moving in the wrong direction. But, yeah, I mean, there's something about Americans, what I may call the American sense of life, that makes America special. And, and, 
and I see Ed Powell wants to argue about uh, about California, and I'm sure other people want to argue about California. <laughs> but you know, you know, these are my subjective value preferences, and uh, you're not gonna, you're not. Gonna I'm a native me. Californian. People, I'm not. So. I've, I, it took me a long path to get here, but but I actually like it here. But the millions of sheep do help, absolutely. Let, New Zealand, that is. Millions of sheep in New Zealand, yeah, definitely they help. They, 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 they are all potential future dinners. There were questions early on. What were they You on? saw some questions up there. Let no, me see right if in I the can, beginning, were they in Israel or something? Do we want to go let to me Israel see if or do I we can, want to go somewhere? Well, this is what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, given that you know that you were sounding a little bit like a libertarian in the idea of not trusting. Oh, let's, let's right? differentiate let's, myself now. No, no, no let's, let's not do that. <laughs> let's, let's really make them think you sound like a libertarian. And have you talk about why you think we should cut off aid to Israel? Oh, there you go. There, now you really Perfect. sound like a libertarian. Well, I don't believe that taxpayer money should be going to foreign aid, period. I don't believe in redistribution of wealth uh, in the United States. I don't believe in redistribution of wealth outside of the United States. It's not the job of government to take my money and give it to other people because they need it. Even if they need is great. Uh, and Israel's need, by the way, is not great. But even if they need was great. Um, I can imagine that the United States would work on projects with Israel where money exchanged hands. So, for example, uh, I think there's a lot of corporations around the Iron Dome. And one of the reasons the United States is giving a lot of money to the Iron Dome is because Israel is developing technology the United States would love to be able to use. So there's an exchange of values there, right? They're getting money out of the defense budget. It should be. I don't know if it is, but it should be out of the defense budget. And in exchange, the United States is learning, gaining technology from Israel. But I'm against foreign aid, qua foreign aid, qua military budget, qua, qua defense budget. If Israel is fighting a common enemy, if Israel is developing a, 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 a technology that's helpful for our defense and so on, uh, then, then yeah, qua defense budget, we, should be, we, we might be in a position to help them. But, but look, the bottom line is that Israel doesn't need it. It actually ties strings to Israel. It constrains them because then there's the risk of taking it away. And it creates in Israel and in Israeli politicians' minds an entitlement and dependability um, uh, state of mind. So, Dependence, right, right. So they yeah. think they need the United States, so they pay more attention to the United States than they should. And the other thing it prevents is Israel doing the kind of economic reforms that they should continue to do because Israel should be moving even faster towards capitalism than they are. And they could be rich enough that they wouldn't need anything from the United States. Right. The $3 billion the United States gives Israel today is, is not that significant if you look at the overall wealth, the overall production in Israel. But if Israel was free, it could be producing even more. And one of the barriers to that freedom is that they get a check, right? It's just like giving a check to a poor person. They don't, their incentive to go to work is lowered. Israel's incentive to reform its economy is lowered because the United States is subsidizing them. So, yes, I believe for Israel's sake and for my sake and for your sake, the United States should stop all aid to Israel. On the other hand, and this is let me contrast myself with libertarians, I believe the United States should grant Israel uh, complete um, uh, political, moral uh, 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 support. I also think that the United States should uh, cooperate with Israel on intelligence, as it relates, going back to the NSA, as it relates to terrorist organizations that, that ha that, who are common enemy mm -hmm. to, the, to, uh, to the United States. I'll, I'll say a word or two words that Bosch hates, the Islamic totalitarians. 
know, he was giving me a hard time before I, the show. I, I, I'm not a fan of this. those words either, but, but anyway, anyway, I'm not as vehement. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so the Islamic totalitarian movement, they should share intelligence about that movement and about it. Uh, and uh, they, they should cooperate militarily to the extent that, that Israel is, is helping out. Um, so, uh, you know, that is a very non-libertarian, to, at least, again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the anarchist, anti-Israel. Uh, libertarians, although most libertarians have kind of an ambivalence towards Israel, so even the better libertarians don't seem to be pro-Israel. Well, and I think, I think, I think some of them some tie are. it up with the idea that we should be more isolationist militarily than we are. So, Well, this is a perfect example yeah. of isolationism, right? Don't send American troops. Please don't send American troops. I'll just putz it up. But give the Israel the green light to do whatever is necessary to defend itself. Please. And by the way, that means doing a lot more than what they're doing in Gaza. It, oh, means, yeah. it means that a lot more people in Gaza will die. If Israel was actually doing what it's supposed to do, what its moral responsibility is to its own people, demands that it do, it means that a lot more Gazans would die. Every death in Gaza, every single death in Gaza, is on the head of Hamas. Yes. It's on those who initiate force. Israel needs to do whatever is necessary at the cheapest cost to its own people of, to destroy Hamas and to bring them to their knees, to crush them, so that, so that uh, it, they are never, ever a threat to Israel again. John Kenny reiterated the question that he did have earlier oh, here in the chat the room. Tunnels? Yeah. Did yes. Israel know about the tunnels before they went in? Yes, they knew about some of the tunnels, but they did not know the extent of the tunnels. They didn't know how many tunnels they were. They didn't realize, I think. Now, again, I'm getting the second hand just like you are. Now, this is a little bewildering to me, and I'll tell you why in a minute. It turns out, and this should not have been a surprise to Israelis, and I'll tell you why in a minute. It turns out that, the, that Hamas has built tunnels all over underneath Gaza. This is where their military people are hiding. This is where their leadership are hiding. They're hiding in bunkers connected by tunnels under the hospitals, under the schools, under the residential neighborhoods. But all of Gaza, Gaza is a tiny little area. All of Gaza is riddled with tunnels. What Israel was primarily concerned about were the tunnels leading into Israel. And those, they knew there were some, they didn't realize how many, and then they didn't realize how intricate this network of tunnels was under Gaza. Now, why should they have known? So I was in Israeli military intelligence in 1982 when Israel uh, went into Lebanon, kicked the PLO's butt, destroyed them, devastated them, I mean, crushed them. They knew how to, we knew how to crush in those days. Um, and then got to Beirut and basically had... Yasser Arafat and, and thousands of his, of his uh, uh, terrorists trapped in West Beirut. And what they had done was built tunnels mm. underneath the, the, uh, the camps, the refugee camps, and underneath West Beirut. So they had already, the PLO had already refined this tactic of putting anything underground because Beirut was devastated by them because of the Lebanese civil war, not even by the Israelis, just the Christians and the Muslims and the, and the uh, and the Druze killing each other and bombing each other. So, so the city was devastated. The only way they could move freely, the only way they could move troops, the only way they could move weapons and so on, was to use these tunnels. So Israel should have known that they would use that tactic again. Right. Um, of course, just as a historical anecdote, which changed the whole history of the Middle East, we were, Israel was ready 
and, and my unit was responsible for uh, involved in the planning of this, was ready to, to go into West Beirut and destroy those tunnels and, and, cap, and, and kill Yasser Arafat and kill his people. And it would have changed the whole dynamics of the Middle East because the PLO would have been eliminated in a sense and Israel would have then negotiated, uh, hopefully, uh, with local Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza who were far more moderate than the, than the PLO in exile than Yasser Arafat was and who knows where, you know, where that all would have landed up with. Maybe with a peaceful two-state solution, maybe with a transition, maybe, who knows. But it wouldn't have, it, we wouldn't have had Oslo, we wouldn't have had the disaster that followed. Um, so the person who saved Yasser Arafat and thousands of, Pal- of Palestinian terrorists was Ronald Reagan, oh. who guaranteed Yasser Arafat's safety out of West Beirut under a Marine Watch, uh, put, it, put him on a UN boat and shipped him off to Tunisia, where Yasser Arafat spent from 1983 until 1992 when he returned to the West Bank as part of the Oslo Agreement. 1994, sorry, when he returned to West Bank under the Oslo Agreement. But... Uh, so Ronald Reagan saved Yasser Arafat, uh, and this, this, is, this is the dabbling of the U.S. in the Middle East and the disastrous consequences that it has. What is your prediction now for Israel? I guess the latest is that they had a 72-hour truce. Right after, at the end of it, Hamas started the bombs again, and they're not at the table yet, but they say what they're willing to be at the negotiation table? Do you have any prediction? Yeah, so let me just answer this. You'd think it would be easy to bomb them closed. The tunnel's closed, right? No, because, because remember Gaza is, uh, I mean, it is, but you'd have to use big bombs in residential areas. Bunker busters. And Israel yeah. doesn't do that. It, it doesn't, I mean, these bombs that it's using in Gaza are small bombs, very targeted bombs. The fact that only 2,000 Palestinians have died in Gaza is, is, is amazing. In, in, how li- in how small that number is. If you think about the density of the population, of the, of the population there, the, the amount of buildup. So all these tunnels are under built-up areas. And it, the, Israel doesn't have the technology, which is kind of interesting, because I would have thought they would have, to identify the tunnels from the air. You would think that some kind of sonic technology or something would be able to identify whether these tunnel things, and then you'd you could target them, but they don't have that technology for some reason. Do you think there's anything? I think anything they will develop them coding, now. Coding the walls of the tunnels that no, bounces I don't think off that, the no, Hamas is not okay, sophisticated okay. enough. I think the Israelis just haven't put their energy into it. I think they will now, and now you'll see a whole new technology development, finding these things and destroying them. But because they're under buildings, Israel won't destroy those buildings. They won't use these kind of big bombs. That, it's not even bust a, bu- bunker, bunker busters. It's just big bombs. Okay. They use small bombs because they want to minimize civilian casualties, which is a big mistake. Yeah, Ed Powell says, ground-penetrating radar. Would you like to take a call? Sure. Okay, let's go ahead and see who this is. Hi, you're well, on. I just this? Heard... Hi. Um, I'm the one angry Jew. You've talked to me before. The, uh, you heard? just said something about... Yeah, you didn't like an before. angry Jew. Like a little bit. Eh, every man has a lot of angry Jews around what, who, uh, who said that they weren't sophisticated enough to whatever? Because from what I heard, these tunnels were pretty sophisticated. They're sophisticated in the sense of concrete and, and tunneling technology and stuff like that. Not technologically sophisticated. There's nothing technologically sophisticated about these. This is, this is I mean, there are more tunnels than Israel expected, and the network is more, you know, uh, more sophisticated in a sense. But there, there's no technology that's preventing Israel from discovering these tunnels. 
The, the main thing um, preventing Israel from destroying I don't know. Economy. I don't know what technology would be used for that. But I don't it know seems either. To but me, that the only reason were you were you intimating that they uh, might be lead lined or something? Were you? Well, I was. I was or, suggesting maybe that could. Yeah, happen. they don't have enough lead to do it. I mean, they, the, the number of tunnels. Right. It's a matter it's of not, their getting the resource, the materials. They don't have that kind of resources, materials. But you know what's look the the end of the day, what's preventing. Israel from doing what's necessary and what prevented Israel in 2006 and in 2010 and in 12 and every year of doing what's necessary, it's it's their moral qualms about about going in and destroying Hamas. Uh, I it's disagree with that. It's just war theory. It's, it's just I war disagree. Yeah. It's the manifestation why. of altruism. Why, why do you disagree? It's not their it's not their moral qualms. It's the consensus of the rest of the world imposing pressure on them. I think Israel, left by themselves, would do what they need to do. But they've I got wish to play you, these games with us. Yeah. I wish you were right, but when I go to Israel and I talk to people, there is an overwhelming majority, in my view, and maybe I'm wrong, an overwhelming majority of Israelis who are just as sensitive to this stuff as the world opinion is. That They would tolerate maybe 4,000 dead, and the world only tolerates 2,000 dead. But at the end of the day, their standard is how many Palestinians die. And my standard is not how many Palestinians die. My standard is how do we achieve victory as quickly and as painlessly as possible. And there are almost no Americans who would tolerate that today if America did it. And I think the fact is that Israelis are just as influenced by the leftist philosophy and leftist ideology that is driving the West as the West is. Uh, you know, again, because it's hurting them and it's because of their kids on the line, they are willing to tolerate a little bit more. But look, 60 Israeli soldiers died in this offensive. They That's shouldn't have... Could, Israel, could Israel survive without our help? Uh, probably not. Not, not. not in the long run, probably not. And they're That's stuck true. with uh, the opinion that goes rampant through no, America. No, I agree, but, uh, but I think that even if, our, even if our opinion was different, I don't... I, 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 I hope you're right. But just knowing Israelis... Talking to Israelis, being half, you know, being one, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me that the Israeli, the philosophy driving the way Israel views war, is so different today than it was 20, 30 years ago. It's because of just war and theory, and that just, just war, war theory, theory has been expo- exported you, from our military institutions all over the world. When you it's, talk to Israeli soldiers in the field, and you ask them about rules of engagement. They, what they convey is the same altruistic, pro-sacrificial, just war theory approach that you can read about. If you, go, if you look just war theory, you're Ron Brook. You can find my article about this. And I debated, well, I once debated on, Amy's, Amy's former boss about this, which is self-sacrificial in its essence. And Israeli soldiers, not because of world pressure, not because public opinion, are expressing the same reservations about all-out war that, that, that the rest but, of the world is... But am I hearing you correctly that you believe altruism exists? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Everywhere. So you, you believe everywhere. that people I have altruistic you, tendencies? Everywhere. I believe it's everywhere. I, I, I think I it's the most no, powerful no, but it's, moral force right. in the world today it's, by it's, far. It's not like it's built in as an instinct. No, of course not. But it is taught to the majority of the population from such a young age that it may as well seem like instinct by the time people are adults. So they, they have a very hard time, I think, letting go of it. Even when they explicitly decide that it's wrong, some people have a hard time. 
I mean, it expresses itself in the fact that Israeli soldiers, like American soldiers, will not shoot at buildings, even though, under circumstances, we're not shooting at buildings, will endanger their lives and their friends' lives. They They will let... They will not shoot because they're afraid of, of hitting civilians. So that is altruism. That's altruism. When, you, when you're willing to sacrifice your life for the sake of, of, of so-called innocence and the not innocent, um, Why would that's altruism. Did, did you, did you hear that because audio clip? Because it's hard to do it. See, people want to be good. This is an important topic, right. more, important, more important than the policy issues. People want to believe that they are good people that they're good, that they're essentially good. And, and that's the most important thing that drives people, in my view, is good people, is that they want to be good. Can you, can you turn that phone off, yeah, please? Some, it's making a lot of noise. in the background. I may, I may have to actually... And then what happens is... Okay, we're good. What, what happens is that they are taught that what it means to be good is to sacrifice. Right. And so they, they, they engage in this... So they, they, they're put in these positions where they're self-interest dictates one action but and 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 being good dictates another action most people will go with being good even it turns out in a life or death situation and this is the evil of what we're teaching our kids this is why it's all about education this is why altruism is the most deadly force out there in the world it's not the left it's not politics it's not any particular political ideology it's It's not even jihadists it's not even jihadists, the most evil force out there, the one that's destroying our capacity to defend ourselves, to do what's necessary, is the philosophy of altruism. And just war theory, all that is is the application of altruism to how to fight a war. Right. And that is what's being taught in military academies in Israel. That's what these young kids are being taught. Wait, wait a second. I when thought they go to altruism doesn't exist. It does exist. He said it doesn't exist. I mean, all of Atlas Shrugged is about the existence of True altruism? Absolutely. Pure altruism? I don't think so. Well, what do you mean by pure? Consistently practiced altruism doesn't exist because you would die. But altruistic action... I I, I still believe that everybody does things for selfish reasons. But you're wrong. The best thing that ever happened to me was failing moral philosophy. Because I got to take it again with a good professor who uh, taught objectivism as one of the topics. But that's great. But object- nobody out there, except for a few dozen of us, acts like an objectivist. Well, and this is the thing about objectivism, too. Objectivism doesn't believe that people automatically act Absolutely selfishly. Not. They believe that it is actually an often difficult choice to choose and act according to your rational self-interest. Absolutely. And I, I think so this is yeah. what I tell, my, I tell students all the time. No, being but I think selfish, don't realize being that's selfish what they're doing. is hard. They can't admit that that's what they're doing. No, but, but they're, they're doing. not doing it no. because That's being selfish do. doesn't mean acting on your emotions. And look, your emotions are often no, I didn't say dictated did. by your altruistic moral beliefs. So you, what, what you think is going to make you feel good is satisfying altruism. Ayn Rand's whole philosophy is about that, that selfishness is an achievement. To, to be selfish requires hard work. It requires real thinking. That going by emotion is not being self-interested. It is not selfishness to go by your emotion. Quite the contrary. Right. It's self-destructive. And it's usually guided by what your moral philosopher taught, which is altruism, I, and therefore well, your I'm emotions lead you to act altruistically. I, I'm telling you that people act in their own self-interest no matter what. It's I'm whether or not that's they're, absolutely they're willing not to admit okay. it. Well, what, what, absolutely not what, what a lot of people do sometimes is they do something where they 
think something is in their self-interest, or at least they've deceived themselves to think that something is in their self-interest when it's truly not. People, to people able, don't even do that most and, of and the time. And then a lot of times you can identify what is in your self-interest, and then for some reason people defeat themselves and don't act on it anyway. So there's all kinds of reasons people don't you know, act according to their self-interest. They don't achieve that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, Look, I know there's this view out there. That there's no such thing as selfishness, and there's no such thing as self. There's no such thing as selflessness. There's no such thing as altruism. That is not what Ayn Rand advocated. That's not what objectivism advocates at all. Objectivism says that your your what you that morality is about choices, right. and that people make choices, and they can make choices that are good for them, and that's rare, and that requires thought, and that requires effort, and that requires reason. Or they can act against their self-interest in a variety of different ways against self-interest. And that's what most people do a lot of the time, particular when they're taught a particular, when they're taught a particular moral ideology like, uh, like just war theory and like altruism. They, they are taught something completely different and therefore they act in a, in a, in a way that is against their own self-interest. This is, it's, it's a good issue because this is a fundamentally a right. fundamental point, and there's a lot of confusion about this issue. Stuart in the chat room writes, if all actions were self-interested, then not only would there not need to be such adjectives as self-sacrificing or unselfish, but there would not even need to be such an adjective as self-interested or selfish. It would just Well, there's be. another call. You've got another call. Yeah, we do have another call. And I think the time. other call is coming from the person who thinks that the current discussion isn't productive, but we'll see if, that, if I'm right about that. One second. Let's see who this is. Uh, thank you, Angry Jew, for your call. Hi, who's this? I am not angry and I'm not a Jew, but I'm calling. This is it. No, oh, that was the other guy. How are you doing, we Ramon? To the other guy. No, no, no. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just thanking our previous caller. How are you doing, Ed? Good, good. Hey, let's go back to 1982 again, because that was a very, very interesting story. I remember being a young college kid at the time, and I couldn't, for the life of me, understand why the uh, PLO was allowed to escape. And do you know what, I mean, yeah. Same what were you today. told at the time? Civilian, I mean, ca civilian like casualties, civilian casualties in Beirut. A lot of people were going to die if Israel went into Western Beirut. Uh, you know, Israel had exceeded its mandate. Yes, it was self-defense required that they kick out the PLO from southern Lebanon, but it didn't require them all to go all the way to Beirut. Uh, the fact is, I mean, this is this is kind of inside information, but the fact is that um, uh, the the Israeli cabinet did not even approve going to Beirut. That Arik Sharon, who was defense secretary at the time, basically went to Beirut, you know, on his own without telling Begin, mm. and and Begin Begin was prime minister and he followed up. But but the U.S. had not signed off on on the complete destruction of the PLO. The other issue is that that people in the State Department and people in Europe believed that Yasser Arafat um, was, was a legitimate leader uh, of, a, of, a, of a political movement and that if there was going to be ever going to be peace with the Palestinians, he needed to be kept alive because, you know, they, they always say this, well, he's bad, but the alternative is worse, right? So, so they wanted to keep him alive to get to Oslo because I think everybody wanted Oslo even back then. The only people who didn't were the Israelis. And, you know, they were basically, the United States put pressure on them. And, they, they, you know, and there was some internal pressure in Israel as well, because it was clear that, 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 that this was a bigger war than what they'd expected. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, it was insane. It, it was complete insanity what was done, and it's uh, it's on Reagan's head. And of course, Israel for paying attention to it. And then of course, Saba and Shatila happened. If you remember the massacre of of the of right. the Muslims by the Christians, it was blamed on Israel. And then world opinion again shifted. And it's all about civilian casualties. It's always about altruism. Yeah, I mean, but it's not. I mean. Look at all the civilian casualties going on in Syria and Iraq today, and nobody cares, right? I mean, they only care, it seems, when the civilian casualties are being, uh, are being caused, the few of them that there are, by a country uh, who deserves to exist and who yeah, protects but rights, sense, more or less. But there's a sense in which that's right. So think about it this way. If we believe that Israel, if, 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 you know, if you're an altruist, right, then your perception is, look, Everybody in Syria is a barbarian. So, yeah, they're barbarians. So you expect them to behave like barbarians. But Israel is a civilized country. Civilized countries behave altruistically. And therefore, when Israel does it, it's horrific because they should know better. They're ultimately, they're civilized. That's the definition of civilized, right? Being willing to sacrifice. So, yeah, in some sense, we would all say, yes, Israel should be held to a higher standard than, than Syria is. But our standard, of course, is self-interest. <laughs> so the way we... But if your standard is altruism, then that would lead you... So it's completely understandable to me that the Europeans hate Israel more than they hate what's going on in Syria because they hold the Israelis up to a higher standard, and they should. But again, the fundamental problem is the ideology. The fundamental problem is altruism. And with Europeans and with many Americans, unfortunately, all this is, of course, tinged with, with anti-Semitism now. Yes, yes. And you yeah, know, I, I, I was going to say, just speaking sorry. of the altruism, there's the clip from um, Bill Clinton recently, the one that was uh, an audio from hours before 9-11, where he talks about having let bin Laden get away because it would have meant killing all the women and yeah. children in, was it Kandahar well, or something? I can't remember. Well, Clinton did that, and he, he 300 uh, civilian casualties they thought they would have if they killed bin Laden then. Imagine how many lives it would have saved, tens yes. of thousands of lives, hundreds yes. of thousands of lives. And then the second one was right after 9-11. Right after 9-11, George Bush, uh, several occasions supposedly in Afghanistan, they had opportunity to shoot to kill bin Laden. And again, they, they didn't do it because of so-called collateral damage. So no, this is, I mean, I'm serious. This, the whole battle is about altruism. And sorry, angry Jew, but you know, I know you're still out there. But altruism does exist, and it is the enemy, and that's what we need to fight. Right. Well, we knew we knew we were in trouble uh, after 9/11 when Bush uh, dropped bombs and food at the same time out of our aircraft. It's like, wow! When you I, even, can you imagine dropping? Drop when you even before that, when he called, uh, when he called, uh, you know, uh, Islam uh, uh, the religion, uh, of, religion peace. of peace, and yes. he, and he peace, said the yeah. good Muslim. You know, it would be like saying, you know, even though. In a sense, that's true, but it's irrelevant, right? You don't, you don't have to, Paul Harbor, say, well, they're good Japanese and bad Japanese, and we're only going to go after the bad Japanese. I mean, that's insanity, and that's suicide, and that's exactly what George Bush did, and, and we're living the consequences of it. Any, anything else, Ed? Because uh, we are actually a bit over time now, and I want to do a little hit and run on a couple of issues before we let your own off the hook for this evening. No, that'll be it. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for staying up on the East Coast there and for calling in, Ed. Take care. And people in the chat room, too, thank you for being here. Now, we had a couple other things. Do you want to make any comment, for instance, on the inversions, the corporations? Yeah, so these are corporations that are buying um, non-U.S. corporations and they're flipping their, in a sense, their 
the corporation status to be a foreign company. Uh, and they get significant tax advantages from this because the fact is that the United States today has the highest corporate income tax rate of, of any uh, Western country. That is unbelievable. Um, so, and, and, and everybody's flipping out. And by the way, this is Republicans and Democrats, and they're talking about economic patriotism. And the only responsibility of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders. It, I celebrate when Apple minimizes their tax bill or when, you know, they should all minimize. I mean, if, if you can avoid uh, your money being stolen from you, good for you. So I think it's irresponsible of them not to do it. Right. If you can reduce your taxes and, and enrich your shareholders by becoming domicile in Switzerland or in the Cayman Islands or in Mexico, as long as it's not an enemy of the United States, then you should absolutely do it. I think it's irresponsible. I think shareholders should sue Walgreens for not doing it. And the fact that both Republicans and Democrats are attacking this just shows you how corrupt, how statist all of them are. And, and you know, this is the horrific. By the way, they did the same thing, if you remember, a couple of years ago when individuals were giving up their U.S. citizenship and moving overseas for tax reasons, like the, one of the co-founders of Facebook or something. Right. And uh, I, I think it was... Uh, it's was it's this, a 30% Senate percent of, tax now or something yeah. to so leave. So now to leave, you have to pay a special tax. Now, this is... This is the definition of authoritarianism, of totalitarianism, mm -hmm. when you can't leave a country, when they make it difficult for you to leave. And this is true of a corporation. It's true of an individual. When they start taxing you when you leave, it's, we're getting close, guys. We're getting close to... Well, and Glenn Beck has been, I think, just this week, sounding the same alarm, saying, look, oh, it's getting Glenn. to the point where if they're saying they're going to tax you as you go out the door... This is preventing you from leaving. That's the definition of a tyranny where they do not let you I mean, leave. good for Glenn. I have this love-hate relationship know, with Glenn I Beck. Know. I mean, some stuff, he is the best, most outspoken, positive critic of, uh, you know, critic for liberty, and he's terrific. And then he attacks something like evolution or something, and he, he, he can be completely as wacko. Yeah, Freedom Breeze in the chat room says, yes, this is like a wall to keep you in, and that's as objectivists, we realize that our property is essential for us to maintain our lives. So you can't have this dichotomy between your right to life and your life, right to property. Your right to property is the implementation of your yeah, right and, to and, life. And in a sense that you have a right to privacy, which is a derivative right, right. but you know, it's a sense of right to privacy. It, it's, it's all about the right to life. Right. Your life, which means property, which means privacy, which means freedom, which means liberty, which means thinking, which means moving, which means transporting across state lines and country lines. It means doing with your life as you see fit. That's what it means. And, and these guys, you know, these guys want to wall us in because we're the property of the state. This is what it means. It means Walgreen and its shareholders, because Walgreen is just, again, corporations are just contracts. It's a, it's a, it's a, in finance, we call it a nexus of contracts, right? right? Contracts by whom? By individuals. So when you wall in Walgreen, you're walling in people. You walling in people. So the, uh, I mean, they would, be, they would basically like to invest their money and send that money anywhere where it can make more money for them. And the government is preventing them from doing that in essence with this, right? With the, uh, Inversion. Yeah, they're gonna, yeah. they're gonna, they're gonna. So the Congress isn't doing anything, but it looks like the Obama administration would have, will have the IRS 
reinterpret certain tax code, the tax code, in order to prevent people from from leaving. Pen and a phone. Well, the only I have another huge topic that I will not ask you because we are over time. Do you want to do a hit and run on Ebola before we call it a night here? Are you looking at some of the questions? Sure, but let me say again. I, I recommend everybody go out there who's confused about this stuff. I'll, I'll talk about Ebola in a second, but everybody who's confused out there about selfishness to read. Ayn Rand's The Virtue of Selfishness, to read her, 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 her uh, essay, lead essay on ethics, uh, The Objectivist Ethics. It's on the Ayn Rand Institute website. So if on, you, on the if website you Google screen. The Objectivist Ethics, just type in The Objectivist Ethics in Google, Go you will find it, that essay. Because you have to understand that we are not automatically, we don't do things automatically. And to the extent that you do things automatically, what you're doing is, is being dictated by ideas that you've accepted already. And if those ideas are anti-self, then you're acting against your self-interest. And in, so the way you're saying, I, I think every, everything is done due to selfishness. Basically, what you're saying is the word selfishness has no meaning. It has no meaning because if selfishness means taking care of self, it's choice and action. And that means you have to have the choice and, to be able to act opposite. If it's automatic, then it's meaningless. There is no such thing as the word selfish. Right. Selfish means, anyway, what is the issue about Ebola? You know, you know, it's funny because they called from, you know, I haven't been on Fox in, in, other than in Stossel for a long, long time. They basically banned me. They don't want me on Fox. And then suddenly I get a phone call yesterday mm. from Neil Cavuto's show. And they say, we want you to come on to talk about Ebola. And what they wanted me to say which oh, is no. just what they wanted me to say was that uh, taking Ebola, Ebola victims and putting them in um, isolation, quarantine, quarantine is a violation of their civil rights. <laughs> and I said, that's insane. I would never say that. So, of course, they canceled the segment and they didn't have me on. Yeah, because they could get nobody they to say to, that. They, they want wanted me, somebody to say they, something they totally irrational. They want me to look like a yeah. nutcase. That's what Fox has deteriorated to, is all they want from objectivists is to look like they're crazy. So what is the issue with Ebola? Look, I'm not a scientist, so, so you know, everything I know about Ebola is very secondhand. It's based on the best, you know, reading and stuff like that. But this is my understanding of Ebola. It's not uh, transmitted through the air. It's trans transmitted through bodily fluids. So you have to really come in contact with somebody who has the Ebola virus. You have to have a fluid transfer. They have to spit on you or you have to have blood or, or some, some other way. You have to be exposed to their bodily fluids. So it means that this is a virus that doesn't spread like, like, uh, like uh, you know, like the uh, uh, chicken, uh, like the, the swine flu the swine or any flu other or some right, of the right. viruses that came from Asia, the, the, the flu viruses that come from Asia and so on. They could really cause a pandemic. It's very easy to contain if you have semi-civilization. Right. If you have a hospital system, if you have a police system, if you have a government and the problem and the reason it's spreading so quickly in uh, in Africa is because they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it. It's in an area that's never experienced Ebola before, at least not in modern times that we know of. And, uh, you know, so sneezing. Yes, sneezing is a bodily fluid. Yes, you can get it through sneezing. But but the point is that that what you do is if you can if you can quarantine the people who have it and you can quarantine them quickly, then it's limited in its ability. It's, it's relatively hard to get Ebola relative to, to kind of the flu. So if you, can, if you can structure the quarantining right, it's easy to control. So um, 
Africa doesn't have the infrastructure, particularly it doesn't have governments that can, they can, and that's why it's spreading fast. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Although I am watching this television show called The Last Ship. I don't know if you've heard about this, Mm-mm. but basically the premise is it's about a, a U.S. battleship um, that is out in the Antarctic on a secret mission, and they, they have radio silence. And while they're out on the secret mission, basically 80% of the world population is dead, has wow. died because of an infectious disease. And the secret mission is the scientist on board discovered the bird from which this disease comes from. So I'm watching this show in which everybody's de- dying, in which they're struggling to find the cure and at the same time, the Ebola virus is going crazy. and So, you know, who knows? But, and, and, of course, in the series, the reason it spreads so fast and the reason so many people are dead is because, in a sense, some scientist putzed around with it mm. and turned it into a more dangerous, much more dangerous virus. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's one of these, uh, you know, science fiction crazy, not, you know, it's not bad, but it's not particularly good sci-fi. The other thing I heard TV is that show. there is there is a vaccine, but it's not going to be approved until 2015. By well, the there's FDA. an experimental vaccine that these two Americans are getting right now that seems to have had amazing results because uh, whereas the death rates are very high. 80 percent, I think. Yeah, yeah. These, this guy was actually shown walking off the elevator, uh, uh, the uh, helicopter, walking into the, into the hospital. So it seems like it's having a very positive impact on them, which is a great, which is great. Uh, because, yeah, it's called ZMAP, uh, which is great because it, it really does have the potential. Now, there is an objectivist who's an expert on um, on infectious diseases, and maybe, I don't know if that's him writing there, but... Uh, no, no, this is the angry Jew, I believe, Okay. who's still on hold. Okay. Um, what but but there, is, there is an objectivist who's an expert on, on, uh, on infectious diseases who's written about this, I think, at Forbes and done some TV interviews about it. But, but yeah, I, 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 I'm not worried about it. Uh, I think the biggest things to worry about. Are you up to answer one quick sure. question from Stuart? Sure. We've got Stuart here on the line. Which Stuart is this? Stuart Hayashi, oh, okay. right? Hey, Stuart. Hi, Stuart. Hi, can you hear me? Sure. Oh, hi. So um, I was hoping you could get to the part where he talks about the paleo diet because, um, you know, I think it sounds very interesting, but sometimes I get worried. I talk to people who are on the paleo diet, and a lot of them seem to think that there's some kind of obligation to be, you know, against genetically modified organisms. They say, well, you know, Nassim Taleb is on the paleo diet, and he says GMOs ought to be regulated and banned. And that really worries me. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about that. Hi, oh, my God. You're opening up a, 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 a real can of worms here. Um, I mean, my view is that many people, including, including some objectivists, are treating the paleo diet as a religion. And and uh, uh, treating it in in a sense of absolutism, and and it it doesn't it, it it's not. This is science. Most people that I know who are on the paleo diet are not scientists, and don't know that it's good for them. They're doing the best that they can, and I don't blame them for that. And I'm on a diet very similar to the paleo, although I never say I would never say I'm on a paleo diet partially because of this religious attitude that so many people have towards it, but also part of the fact that I don't buy the science. I, I think the science is, 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 is uh, I'm skeptical about the science. I think it's speculation at this point. I think most of the people I've talked about the paleo diet have really no real understanding of, of, of uh, evolution and what it really means. And I think evolution is a lot trickier than what the simplistic way in which it's, oh, paleo man ate, 
X, therefore I should eat X. It, it's a lot more sophisticated. It's a lot more complex. Biology is a lot more complex than this. Uh, uh, there's a lot of issues here. And I, I find them making the same kind of rationalization that I find Christians making and I find other religious people making about how this and the GMO issue is the same. Uh, look, there's no question in my mind, no question in my mind. Whether, whether at the end of the day you decide that wheat is not good for you or not, fine. Maybe, maybe at the end of the day wheat's not good for you if you live to be 80. But if you're, in, uh, if you're starving in India and, uh, and the only thing keeping you alive is wheat, and I can take that wheat and, 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 and incorporate vitamins in it that now make your quality of life and the length of life better than what you had before. Maybe not optimal. Maybe optimal is, is killing those cows that you, that you think are, are holy uh, and, and eating meat, but, but maybe not optimal. But it's not about optimal. It's about better. And, and given the diet that that Indian has, if he could get corn, if he could get something that would make his life better, that would make it longer, then go do it. And we in America, we can choose. You can eat organic if you believe in organic. Every study I've seen shows that there's no difference between organic food and non-organic food. But, you know, I'm not a scientist, so, so maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm very modest. I mean, I even say the same thing about, about, uh, uh, about global warming. I don't know. Now, I have strong suspicions because I know the type of people that advocate for global warming, global warming, and I don't trust them, and that leads me to have even a greater suspicion about their science. But I'm not a scientist, and let's not pretend that we are, even if we've seen a few graphs and a few charts. Right. That doesn't make you a scientist. And the same with, the, with diet. There's, this is, there's very little objective knowledge about human biology to suggest that we know what's good for us and what's bad for us in detail. And I suspect that each one of us is different, that if your ancestors are from Northern Europe, a healthy diet for you is probably different than a healthy diet from an African who was, who, whose ancestors are from Central Africa uh, or from Asia or from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I, I suspect that there's a lot going on here that we don't understand. We don't have a good enough understanding yet of cell biology, but, but the, the whole GMO debate is ridiculous in my view. This is science. We believe in the marketplace, that the marketplace determine it. There are property rights issues about seeds blowing over from one farmer to another. No biggie. Farmers know how to deal with these kind of property rights issues. They've dealt with them over many decades. The courts have resolved these issues. Mm -hmm. It's not about Monsanto scamming everybody. That's BS. Um, so there are real issues, and in the real world, they are being dealt with. The issues about health are open issues. Let's debate them. If you don't want to eat GMO food, Eat purely organic food, fine. Give people options and let the best science win. But let it be science. And, and, and let's get rid of this religious attitude towards it where people get all hysterical and they get upset. And they, you know, um, you know th th is, Monsanto, is Monsanto involved in cronyism? Sure. But if you stopped buying products from companies that were involved in cronyism, you would have nothing to buy. Right. So let's put everything in perspective. I, I, you know, the propaganda, anti-Monsanto propaganda is ridiculous. It's motivated by the environmentalist movement. It's not motivated by health. It's not motivated by caring about healthy people. And I know there's a bunch of objectivists now who are never going to listen to me again and will probably condemn me to hell, but, but so be it. The truth is what it is. It, it, Greg Salamieri gave a wonderful talk this summer. It's going to be out on YouTube at some point. I encourage everybody to listen to it. It's about how to be objective about science. Yes. 
what you know and what you don't know. And I think too many of us objectivists, and, I, and I'm sometimes guilty of this, too many of us objectivists don't know or don't, are not willing to recognize what it is we don't know. And we think that because we know his philosophy, we know everything. And that's nonsense. We, 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 we need to be able to identify what we know, what we don't know about a particular topic, and know, you know what we need to do more research about and what we need to ask the experts about and what we need to be skeptical about and what we need to, to, to be suspicious of people's motives about. But not, you know... Well, anyway, and, the, and there's also an element, there's a, element of food also that's enjoyment, which we don't want to completely yeah, give up and on, Yeah, the other too. thing is, yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I, mean, I eat a, a, a pretty close to paleo diet. I mean, I'm not, I'm not religious about it at all, uh, and I don't, uh, you know, I don't eat organic. Sometimes I eat organic, but I don't, I don't look for organic food, and I'm not willing to pay whole food prices for organic food. Um, but I eat, I, I, I don't eat sugar, I don't even find sugar, I try to not eat processed foods. But I also realize that I might be completely wrong. I have no, I have no illusions about the certainty of my knowledge. This food is making me, I think, feel better than the food I used to eat. That's an important data point. Right. My, doctor, my, my health numbers are pretty good, they're not as good as I would have expected them to be, so I sometimes... Question, Wonder, right. right? Energy levels. Energy levels right. important. I, you know, as you know, I have a pretty. pretty Here you a lot are. Of it's getting to be late night. You have a yeah. lot of energy. So, but, but I know that I'm not sure about this, and I'm, you know, some things I'm more sure about than others. So I do what I think. But you know, but if 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 a piece of food is out there that I really really enjoy that doesn't fit with this diet, and I know I'm not going to suffer because of it, so it's not a chocolate sacrifice cake. either. Chocolate. I don't eat chocolate cake because it's too sweet for me today. My, my palate has changed as part of my diet. But, you know, I will eat something uh, once in a while. Or if I'm at an airport and I'm starving and the only thing to eat is a sandwich, damn, I'll eat the sandwich. Right. And it tastes damn good. You know what I really miss? The, food I, the one food I really miss is pizza. Oh, yeah. I love But pizza. see, I have pizza every so often. I, I do. I, 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 it's very rare for me. I, I, try, I try to not have more than one slice. You know, go to Costco and maybe pick up one slice because if you eat three slices, you're just asking for trouble. I think. Yeah, and part yeah. of it, somebody says it's it's hard to stay on some of these diets, and that's right. And that's a that's a you know you can't sacrifice other other parts of your life for the sake of a diet. Um, but uh, you know, what can I say? Um, I think I think you have to be very self-aware. I think you in terms of what you know, what you don't know, but then in terms of the food that you eat, what makes you feel good, what doesn't. Uh, you know, everybody today seems to be allergic to gluten. That's probably not true. Uh, some people. There's are, some new some articles are, I think questioning that as well. Right? And and you know and and then so you know I think you just test until we have the scientific knowledge, the full scientific knowledge. But we at the cell biology level, not just an, a proper understanding of, of evolution, which we need and we don't have. Um, until we have that, I, I I think people need to be very careful, particularly objectivists who value being objective mm-hmm. and value the truth, very careful about what we announce as truth and what we denounce in terms of people's behavior and people's eating habits and so on. We, it, it, we need to be objective. This reminds me I have to do some research because I talked about trans fats being bad on this show as if I knew it was for sure true, and I actually need to do research myself on that issue. Stuart, does that answer your question? Um, yes, I want to thank you and Dr. Brooke. You know, I love Amanda Maxim's writings for ARI on GMO. 
And it's really funny. Whenever whenever ERI's Facebook page posts a link to something she wrote, I see a hundred comments from people, and they're very angry, and they always say, you know, you know, I admire Ayn Rand, and I object to a, an institute being named for her being a shill for Monsanto and GMOs. You know, it's all the same. <laughs> but th- but this yeah. is this is when when it gets that emotional. That's when you know th- that it's not that it's that it's it's getting to a religion. You know, it's, it, this is about faith. Because if it was just rational, then make your rational. I mean, I'm the first to admit we might be wrong on a lot of stuff. I might be wrong on GMOs. I might be wrong about Monsanto. I might be wrong. I'm, I'm probably not wrong about Hamas, but I might be wrong on a lot of things, right? And and if the institute's wrong, and institute might be wrong. Ayn Rand was probably wrong on a bunch of stuff, right? So what? I mean, then let's let's debate it, and you might convince me, you might not convince me, but why does this, on a, on a specific issues like this, we're not talking about a fundamental philosophical issue, right. why does it deteriorate into, you're the devil, you're misrepresenting, you're, you know, why does it turn into this, this emotion? And this is why people look at us objectivists and think we're kooks, and they should think we're kooks, because if we can't, if two objectivists disagree about GMOs, can have a civil conversation, then we're nuts, right? We're truly nuts. We should be able to agree to disagree about a specific like that and be able to have a civil conversation and go on with our lives without ripping our hair out and, and naming people names and, 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 and going crazy. Right. I mean, um, what, what she was right about was the method of objectivity that if you continue to be open to evidence, you're going, everything's going to be self correct I don't know why Angry Jew claims he's not nuts. I mean, he's proven to us today that he is. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Only a little kidding. <laughs> Only a little. Um, but, but, you know, we got we to gotta, you know, stop being so righteous about stuff that is, that is at the, at, when it comes to the big issue, you know, relax, guys. You know, we we could we could have two different opinions about GMOs and still be fundamentally on the same team. We're not questioning the fundamental philosophy. Look, one of us is right and one of us is wrong. I'm not I'm not I'm not arguing for um, you know for, for a middle road here. I'm just saying that that the fact that people get so emotional about something like this suggests that they're not rational. That, that it's not rationality that's driving this. You know, it made me think of the heroes in Atlas Shrugged and the extent to which they disagreed on much more fundamental issues than we often do, and the extent to which they still respected each other. Yeah, you know? and I'm being asked, well, how, how did we get to talk about food when Ebola is coming to this country? <laughs> Ebola. Okay, so this is testable. <laughs> this is my prediction, a non-scientist, but I am almost certain about this. I'm not quite certain, but I'm almost certain. We can talk in another two months because if Ebola is coming to this country, it's already here, and in two months it'll be everywhere. This is a testable hypothesis. Ebola is not coming to America. Stop watching Fox, the anti-science, nutty, crazy Fox News. Stop watching television news. Period. They're all nuts. They don't. They, they you know, this is Ebola is not coming to the U.S. And, and if it is, you know, uh, I'm not being careful, so maybe I'll be. He doesn't watch television. You see, the angry Jew is just angry at me today. He is. So, he is. so that, that, is, that is testable. So let's have you back here in two months because I would love to have you back here again. We're about out of time here. Yeah, so I, I need I've to have you. you half an hour over. It's fine. Um, tell people how to find you. Uh, you know, f- please uh, follow me on Twitter. 
uh, and uh, on Facebook. For Twitter, it's Yaron Brook, and Facebook, it's Yaron Brook. And uh, go to the website, uh, to the Ironman Institute, ARI.org, and follow our blog. We've got a terrific blog. Amanda blogs there on GMOs, but there's foreign policy. There's tons of domestic policy. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on there. Don't watch television. Instead of that, go to YouTube, put my name in, and watch all my videos. Do watch all his videos. And then, of course, go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, and you can yes. also continue the discussion on today's show. So, Jerome, thank you very much, and I do look forward to having you back again, Absolutely. as always. Thank you, everyone, in the chat room. Thanks to those of you who called, and have a great evening, people. <laughs>